Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so that you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. I also want to thank FreshBooks for supporting Motley Fool Answers. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com fool and enter Motley Fool in the How Did You Hear About Us section. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. Hello, Allison. We're going to be doing it in our... <laughs> In our low and slow NPR voices today. No, we're not. Today's episode is the fourth and final installment of our series on market crashes with the help of the Collaborative Fund's Morgan Housel. And we're ending with one that a lot of our listeners remember all too well, the Great Recession. We'll also answer your question about the right mix of index funds and individual stocks you should hold. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Victor. Victor writes, I am new to The Motley Fool, and I am confused by seemingly conflicting advice. Aren't we all, Victor? (laughs) Here's where we say that we are Motley. That's right. And we bring together many different opinions. But you came here, Victor, because you want bro's opinion. So I'll get back to your question. In The Stock Advisor's Guide to Foolish Success, you wrote that we think that index funds should be the foundation of your portfolio, and for every dollar you put in individual stocks, you roll the same amount into an index fund. Yet, in other articles, you suggest that investors don't need funds if they own enough stocks. In a nutshell, should but <laughs> be like in a nutshell, what the heck? Like that's how Victor just should have ended it. What am I supposed to do? But he he's nicer about it. He says, in a nutshell, should I consider a portfolio that is 50% stocks and 50% index funds, or should I avoid funds once I've gotten up to speed? Well, as Allison pointed out, we're a Motley crew. So I think if you were to ask anyone who works at the Motley Fool for an answer to this question, you'd get a slightly different response. Oh, yeah. Ask five fools, you'll get six different answers. (laughs) Um, But I will say so the, the advice that you got from Stock Advisor, which is our flagship membership service, I think is a great way to start. And that was basically 50 50 in terms of how you allocate the two. And I would say you you know when to move more towards individual stocks and away from index funds when you feel like you've got a handle on investing in individual companies, you've been doing it for a few years. When one of those stocks goes down 50-70%, you don't freak out and sell, you manage to hold on. You've established uh, a record of being able to pick good individual stocks. Uh, one of the reasons why I like index funds is I believe in hedging all kinds of things. And being an individual stock picker, as I am, and owning index funds like I do, I have the index funds basically as a hedge against my own failed ability to pick individual stocks if that happens. So far, I've done okay, mostly with the help of The Motley Fool. Um, but I think everyone should have that foundation of index funds. A lot of people might find that surprising coming from The Motley Fool because 98% of what we say and write about is about individual stocks. But really, from the beginning, we have believed that everyone should have a foundation in index funds. The only thing I'll add on top of that is, when we say index funds, people usually think of the S&P 500. But what I really think is you should split that up between something like the S&P 500, also a small cap index fund, and an international stock index fund. So, while I think 50% of your portfolio in index funds is good, you should spread it out among the types of index funds. 
Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Hey there, Delilah, I know times are getting hard, but just believe me, girl, someday I'll pay the bills with this guitar, we'll have it good. Well, it's the fourth and final episode in our series on market crashes, and Morgan joins us again. Hi, Morgan. Hi, guys. Haven't seen you in a long time. I know, it's been a while. For many listeners, they remember very dearly the Great Recession because they lived it, but let's revisit it because they said it was great for a reason. The aughts got off to a rough start with 9-11, which was actually the day after I moved to D.C. D.C. is into warm town, and there's a reason they call it the city of northern charm and southern efficiency. But in the wake of 9-11, everyone was walking around looking for a hug. And perhaps it was all this coming together that helped fuel Web 2.0, which was a new wave of the internet built around community and social media. We did a lot of sharing back then. Music, blogging, pictures, videos, so many feels. And while as a nation we ramped up watching cat videos, we also ramped up buying houses. And here's where the fun begins. The Great Recession kicked off in December of 2007. I Googled it, and that's the answer I got. But Morgan may correct me on when it actually began. So, yes, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary. So, Morgan, it's your turn to talk. As much as I want to blame Twitter, what led us into the Great Recession? Let's, let's just go with Twitter. I'm okay I with that. Twitter. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, I, think, I think if you, you start with the 1990s boom, and then the bust, the, the, the dot-com bust, there's something happened after that. Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal is one who first brought this up. Where he said investors are very good at learning their lesson, but they've learned too precise a lesson. Mm. So after the dot com bust, people lost all this money trading dot com stocks, and the lesson that they learned was the stock market is dangerous. But they didn't learn the lesson that of of leverage and going into things that they don't understand. So basically, a lot of people who lost a fortune in the dot-com bubble packed up, took what money they had left, and went straight to real estate. Oh, and it was almost like instantaneous between that movement and then what the Fed was doing with interest rates, making leverage really, uh, really appealing in the early 2000s. The real estate bubble happened, I mean, basically like the day the dot-com bubble ended. You know, real estate <laughs> prices start rising. And even though we had a recession, 2001, 2002, real estate prices were rising all during yeah. that time. Yeah. No impact whatsoever on real estate prices. And then between really low interest rates, and this is what Robert Schiller talks a lot, the psychology aspect of bubbles. You know, when you have something like, like, like optimism with an asset, that just feeds on itself and it snowballs on itself. And you see your neighbors getting excited and your your brother and your sister and your parents making money on real estate. And then optimism just spreads and it grows. So, but no one so was making knows what money yet, right? They were just being able to afford more and more house than they could. No, I think a lot of people were making money. It was just early like 2002, okay. 2003. Flipping them and taking out the home really equity to buy things. really when started getting, okay. getting yeah. big. You had a lot of people that purchased homes in the 80s and 90s for a, a mortgage interest rate of maybe 8 or 9%, which in the 80s and early 90s, that's what a mortgage cost. And now you could refinance your mortgage at 3 4%. So people were doing that and getting a dramatically lower payment or just pulling a ton of equity out of their house that they could use to buy jet skis and remodel their house and, and whatnot. And it's always it's, jet skis. It's, it's, people love, I know, poor, <laughs> Twitter and jet skis get blamed for everything. They should. These poor There's products. a reason why. So what was the tipping point? So everyone's buying these houses they can't ultimately afford. 
what caused the great recession? I think it's not necessarily the people who own homes, but it was the banks and the investors that owned all of those mortgages. When when they started defaulting on their loans, these big banks and hedge funds and sovereign wealth funds that own all these subprime mortgages, that's when credit markets really started seizing up. So the first one was a group of hedge funds in the summer of 2007. They were big credit funds, and all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, they shut their doors. If you're an investor, you can't have your money back, because they had no liquidity wow. in their portfolio. They couldn't sell their subprime bonds. There's bonds, there's no market for them. So, uh, you know, if you, so the subprime bonds and mortgage bonds, which is a trillion-dollar industry back then, happened very quickly in 2007, where the market just shut down, and you couldn't sell them anymore. And that's really when the panic began. All right. What happened? What happened in the panic? I mean, so you had all these banks around the world that were leveraged 20, 30 times. They had 30 times as much assets as they did equity. This huge amount of, of leverage. So if anything even went slightly wrong, they were in a lot of trouble. And then, and, and so because of that, you know, they started really cutting back on the loans that they were making to the rest of the economy, cutting back on business loans, cutting back on personal loans to creditworthy borrowers who, in any other time, would have had no problem getting a loan. They were they were a, a great person to lend to, but the banks themselves were in so much trouble that they started shutting down those loans as well. During this time, I was I worked at a private equity firm in Los Angeles uh, in the summer of 2007. And we experienced as well of uh, uh, taking out loans and financing for great, healthy companies. These were not sketchy subprime loan companies. These were really healthy, prosperous companies that virtually overnight, just the credit spigot just stopped. So things happened really quick with the credit crisis. I think Ben Bernanke, to his credit, you know, recognized this very quickly in 2007, a year before most people started recognizing it. So this is when the Fed in late 2007 really started slashing interest rates and stepping in. But the stock market during this time you know, didn't really have, you know, didn't really blink. Right. So the credit market started shutting down in the summer of 2007. The stock market hit an all-time high in October of 2007. So even after the credit markets were going through all kinds of mayhem, the stock market kept going going up. All right, so the the stock market is still just doing fine, doesn't care, but that ends. At some point, the stock market starts to care. When is that? It starts to decline a little bit, but even as you get into early 2008, it was still doing pretty well, down a little bit, 5 or 10%, but still at a pretty high valuation that would be associated with optimism. Mm-hmm. Like people really weren't that aware of what was going on yet. I think that's a good takeaway from the Great Recession, is that it's easy to sit here in hindsight and say, so obvious. Anyone could have seen this coming. If you just think about stock prices, which is a good reflection for the average opinion out there, even a year after credit markets started tumbling, the stock market really didn't care that much, mm-hmm. which I think is something to reflect on of how hard these things are to spot. Mm-hmm. Even with a year's worth of data in your face, most people really didn't see it. Yeah, I feel like I also see this tweet, Twitter, uh, at least once a month, where someone who's like a financial journalist says, the stock market is not the economy. But we always we kind of always think it kind of. I think of that's. Is. I think it's wrong. I, it is. I think the stock market is a reflection of people's, of people's mood, of people's optimism and pessimism, and that also drives the economy. Yeah. So I think you know, people during this time. Another you know you know uh, another aspect of it is that the savings rate during this period didn't increase that much. So people with the incomes that they had, unemployment was still fairly low in late two thousand seven. We're still optimistic enough to go out there and spend a ton of money on restaurants and vacations and whatnot. So late 2007, 2000, early 2008, the economy started slowing a little bit, 
but it was still going at a, at a pretty good clip by a lot of metrics. Things were slowing, but still fairly healthy. And then summer of 2008 is really when things got really dicey. What happened then? I think that's when consumers themselves and businesses really started seeing the writing on the wall. And a couple of events, whether it was Fannie and Freddie being seized, mm. Bear Stearns was you know, uh, basically failed and taken over in March of 2008. Fannie and Freddie was, I think, August of 2008. And just these confluence of events, that's when unemployment really started ticking up. And it's almost just like a tipping point that's not necessarily based on any one specific news story. But I think it just becomes obvious to most people in the economy where you look around and you say, well, shoot, this yeah. isn't this isn't this isn't good. And, and everyone at the same time, down to me, you know, I, I probably started going to restaurants less often. Yeah. And maybe I, you know, in a, in a you know, one year before I would have spent extra money on this. But now in 2008, I said, ah, I, don't, I should I should hold back. And you multiply that by 300 million Americans. And it really happens so quickly. That between that on the consumer side and then the banking side, of course, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in September, Washington Mutual, Merrill Lynch, AIG, everything just happened in a one-week period. And you put those two things together, a financial crisis and then a slowdown and lack of optimism on consumers. And those two things really drive each other as well. But it really just came, you know, came crashing down in a one-week period in September 2008. So, so much of the stock market is based on optimism. Does that make it often a trailing indicator of how bad things are going in the economy, or is every market crash its own little unique snowflake? I think I think it's unique. There are tons of periods historically where you can look back and say, you know, the stock market was looking in the rearview mirror, at which mm-hmm. you know it hadn't really caught up. And then you can also find a lot of periods where it's obvious that the market was looking ahead at the next six months or the next year and saw a recovery before other people. So I think it's generally phrased as the market is looking six to 12 months ahead. But I think you can also look at periods like late 2007, where I think it was looking 12 months behind and really didn't see what was coming ahead. So we are in the second longest bull market in history. So so we've been, how are we doing? I feel like we're good. The Great Recession, yeah, we're fine, right? We've forgotten the lessons of the Great Recession, or no? No, I think an important point here that explains a lot of what's going on in America is that the last eight or nine years of recovery have been phenomenal for some people and non-existent for others. And that, I think, explains a lot of the political dynamic in the United States over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's, with, the, with the exception of maybe the 1920s, it's hard to find another period in, in American history where things have been so bifurcated. And one group, a pretty big group, doing great. If mm-hmm. you were college-educated, living in a city, and, uh, and below, let's say, age 50, the last nine years have probably been pretty good for you. If you were living in a rural area without a college diploma and you were over the age of 50, the last nine years have probably been pretty tough. And it's usually not like that in the economy. It's usually been, on broad terms, of course, it's never true for everyone, but it's usually that most people move in the same direction at the same time. In the last couple of years, it just hasn't been. One statistic, I remember in 2011, which is kind of the peak skew between groups, if you were a Caucasian female with a college education, the unemployment rate was 2%. If you were an African-American without a high school diploma, the unemployment rate was 48%. Wow. Wow. So like, like when, so people say, how's the economy doing? Well, who are you? Complete, yeah. Completely different based off of people's circumstances. And that's held through today. 
Okay, well, well, you know, we'll just have to wait and see when the next market crashes and see how what happens then, and then we'll have you back on to talk we'll about the We'll come back to one. talk about the Greater Depression. <laughs> yeah, the, well, please come back then. Actually, you can't get you don't get to leave just just yet because, of course, we have the last installment of your month long trivia game coming at you. <laughs> Thanks to FreshBooks for supporting today's episode of Motley Fool Answers. If you're a small business owner, freelancer, or are running a side hustle, then listen up, because FreshBooks is accounting software for people who don't love accounting. FreshBooks is the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. You can use FreshBooks to manage your invoices, including sending out reminders to your clients, because that's no fun. You can also log your billing time and track expenses. The website and mobile app have a clean design and are simple to use. If you want to check it out and see if it's right for your business, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com fool and enter Motley Fool in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com fool and enter Motley Fool in the How Did You Hear About Us section. It's time to break out the trivia board, and I have the categories in front of you. Art and literature, sports and leisure, geography, history, science and tech, and entertainment. Uh, Morgan, as always, is our guest. Why don't you go first? Starting with history again. History, of course, and as you know, that's the Time Magazine Person of the Year. All right. Time Magazine got really creative in the 2000s and had a hard time deciding on just one person of the year, more than once. Well, I can get behind recognizing the American soldier in 2003 who were fighting in Iraq. The most eye-roll-inducing recipient was in 2006 when, thanks to Web 2.0, Time announced who as the person of the year. You. Oh, wasn't that the worst? <laughs> Geeks. You Nerds. and I. This, oh. is, this is in Time's own words. Because you, you, all of us were being recognized for such brave acts as we I, made, I actually have it on my resume. We made Facebook profiles, <laughs> Second Life avatars, and reviewed books on Amazon and recorded podcasts. We blogged about our candidates losing and wrote songs about getting dumped. So brave. Way to go, you. Shaking my head. <laughs> the worst. All right, bro, your turn. Everybody got a trophy. Every, everybody gets a trophy. Everyone, gets, Everyone a trophy. gets a trophy. Uh, let's go science and tech. Science and tech. Polaroid stopped making their cameras in 2008, and in 2009, Kodak stopped producing Kodachrome, the first mass-marketed color film. Well, they may have taken your Kodachrome away, but photography lived on. First release in 2010, what app climbed to more than 100 million users in just two years and shocked everyone when it was later sold to Facebook in 2012 for $1 billion? Instagram. Yay! Dun, dun. You got it right. I got the easy ones. It now has 700 million users, and according to a 2006 uh, to, according to a 2017 study in Britain of kids aged 14 to 24, Instagram is the social media app most likely to make people feel depressed. That's All right. nice. Snapchat came in. Snapchat came in second, and Facebook third. All right, good for them. Morgan, your turn. Uh, let's go geography. All right, geography. What was the title of Al Gore's Academy Award-winning documentary on climate change that came out in 2006? How was that geography? I mean, the answer is an inconvenient truth, but that's not really geography. Well, I don't like... This wasn't that long ago, (laughs) so it's not like a lot of lines have been drawn. It's not like Siam is now... you know. So, yes, an inconvenient truth. The sequel called An Inconvenient Inconvenient Sequel just came out in July. So there you go. All right, bro, your turn. Let's go with entertainment. Entertainment. In 2006, iTunes announced the one billionth song downloaded. It was The Speed of Sound by this very 2007, 2000s band from Britain. 
Oh, man. I, I'm not going to know that one. Let me say Chumbawamba. Morgan got it. Morgan with the steal. Yes, Coldplay. It was purchased as part of Coldplay's X and Y album by a guy in West Bloomfield, Michigan. Apple hit 25 billion downloads roughly seven years later by a man in Germany who, because Germany is not known for their good taste in music, the song was Monkey Drums, the Goxel Vanson remix. So we all remember that. Of course. That right. <laughs> all right, bro, your turn. Uh, no, I did that one. Oh, sorry. Stole yeah, it. Morgan, you stole Sorry. Sports and Leisure. In 2004, Janet Jackson had a wardrobe malfunction on live television during the Super Bowl halftime show. It's actually the day I met my husband. Aww. While it sparked major controversy, controversy, according to ESPN, it also sparked inspiration in the mind of a 25-year-old Silicon Valley whiz kid, Jawed Kareem. He created what website? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, WardrobeMalfunction.com. <laughs> uh do you want to think another second about what uh, it could be? What? It... No, I have no idea. YouTube! He what? decided he wanted to make it easier to find the Jackson clip and other <laughs> on, like in-demand videos. All right. Because everyone went online to try and see the replay. Is that is uh, that? Do you think that's a true story, or is that like the Pez dispensers? You know, I don't know. It was in ESPN story. magazine, so I so don't let's know. just go for it. Let's I thought you were going to ask who played in the game. Who played in that game? Oh, so a year later, he and a couple friends founded YouTube. It was also a really big moment that put TiVo on the map. They enrolled thirty-five thousand new customers in the aftermath of Nipplegate. Worst name ever. Oh. All right. Final one, art and literature. Bro, does that go to you? Sure, I guess so. The final book in this series was published in 2007, but it almost never happened as the author was rejected by over 12 publishers before finally getting a book deal by an eight-year-old girl. Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. I've never yep. read one of the books, by the way. The, I, just you never the, the, I just know the phenomenon. The final book in the series was published in 2007, but it almost never happened as the author was rejected by over 12 publishers before finally getting a book deal when um, the CEO, the head of Bloomsbury Publishing, gave the first chapter to his eight-year-old daughter and she wanted to read more. So according to Scholastic, who publishes the series in the U.S., the Harry Potter books have now gone on to sell more than 400 million copies in more than 68 languages. Amazing. It is amazing. All right. <sighs> well, you tied today. Dun, dun, dun. Next time. Oh, it's nice to end <laughs> on a note like that. Yeah. All right. That's the show. Morgan, thank you again for joining us this whole month. This has been a really fascinating trip down history lane, and we appreciate um, all the context that you're providing so that we will... Be better in the next market crash. I've, I've actually been here all month long recording this. It's been a really long <laughs> Sitting episode. Sitting here in the room. So ready to go home all by himself. Fine. You can go home. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Well, it's the show. Ah, we had so much fun. As we always do. This has been a good month. It was, I mean, we were talking about horrible things, but it's important to learn about these things and gain context so that you'll be prepared when the next horrible thing comes along. Because it will. It will. Oh, sorry. The mar- the mar- Spoiler. The market is full of terrors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, only we're, we think that Game of Thrones a, references are that we're funny. We're all Game of Thrones fans here, if you so, can guess. There you go. All right. So, again, thank you, Morgan, so much for taking the time to do this with us. Um, of course, if you, our listeners, want to get more Morgan, you can go to the Collaborative Funds website. He writes for them, among other things. You can get all of his insights at collaborativefund.com slash blog. Um, 
yeah, just go there, read him. I do. And then I tell him to come on our show, and he does. <laughs> follow him on Twitter, too. Oh, yeah, follow him on Twitter. He also says smart things on Twitter. He's a big tweeter or whatever you call that thing. <laughs> what is it? Tweetering? He's, he's got a blue check. He do, I do, too. I'm verified. What? <laughs> What's the blue check? <laughs> that's my... That, like, there should be... Like, that's my phrase. What? Like, you don't get to steal my phrase. That's why I'm verified, because I've got the sweet catchphrases like that. <laughs> That's how you get it. Uh, no, you just like you just email, you can go to a link on Twitter and you say, "Hey, here's who I am. I'm kind of a big deal," <laughs> and you have to. And then they say, "Okay, cool," and then you get the blue check. And why would you bother? We, because it's kind of a big deal when you get the big check when you're verified. Do you want me to help you with this? It's like being Not a really. star-bellied sneech. Oh, <laughs> uh, we got stars on ours. Yeah, we know how it worked out for the Sneeches, though. Well, we knew how it worked out for the person who was selling and removing the stars. McMonkey anyway. McBean. Sylvester. Sylvester yeah. McMonkey McBean. Ooh, a little longer than the star off machine. Ah. <laughs> ah, we're just in the home stretch. Literally, there's only one more thing I need to say. The show is edited brickily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Brickley?